Obama says Libya was his worst mistake, but should the West intervene again? The Chilcot Report, why is it taking so long? Who wants to be the UN's new Secretary-General? Could fast living and fast thinking mean snap decisions on security and more wars? And X detects the new anti-terror device that could have prevented the Brussels attacks. So first today, the Pentagon says Moscow has violated military protocol. It's after Russian military aircraft conducted a series of what are described as aggressive overflights of a US Navy destroyer in the Baltic Sea. The NATO Secretary General has been speaking in Downing Street. BFBS reporter James Hurst asked him all about it. Russian fighter jets buzzed a US warship. They came within nine metres. What is your reaction to that and how concerned are you that this standoff is getting dangerously close to one side or other actually pulling a trigger this kind of behavior is uh, uh, unsafe and unprofessional and uh, that's the reason why uh, I have uh, for a long time now underlined the importance of uh, more transparency more predictability and uh, increased uh, efforts on risk reductions. Because we have seen substantial, significant increases in military activity along our borders. And we have to avoid incidents and accidents. Uh, and if they happen, we have to make sure that they don't spiral out of control. And uh, we will uh, uh, have a meeting of the NATO-Russia Council next week. And one of the issues we will discuss in the NATO-Russia Council next week is military activity uh, with focus on transparency and risk reduction. And I think the incident we had in the Baltic Sea just underlines the importance of uh, a strong focus on risk reduction and transparency. That was the NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg speaking to James Hurst. Well, BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me. So he mentioned that NATO-Russia Council meeting next week, Christopher. He did. He also talked a lot of rubbish, didn't he, about unsafe and unprofessional. These guys are what they call a Bolshoi... He slate the man straight at the top of the programme. Well, he's, he used to be a Prime Minister. You can look after that. Uh, it's what they call Bolshoi Gonski. Um, it's, it's the unsafe, unprofessional. These guys are really good, good pilots, and they're showing off. Because they got so doing. close, I suppose you, they would say, wouldn't they? They rippled the waters. It's mm. lovely stuff to watch. I mean, we hope nobody goes in. But going back to this, mm. I suppose the most important part of it, he says, OK, next week we will raise this with the, the Russians. The most important thing is the Russians were kicked out of the NATO-Russian Council at the beginning of the whole Ukrainian thing. Mm. They're now back, which gives an idea of the state of relations between NATO countries, especially the United States, because they can't get back in without the United States' blessing. Well, President Obama has admitted the Libya intervention of 2011 was the worst mistake of his presidency. Five years on, and it's still a mess. Well, now the Foreign Affairs Committee wants answers from the Foreign Secretary on what Britain plans to do next. Chairman Crispin Blunt says Philip Hammond has failed to reassure them that Britain won't be sending more troops. He's been speaking to James Hurst. The Foreign Affairs Committee went on a visit to Tunis to examine the situation in Libya in connection with our inquiry into Libya. 
We got briefed there by British officials. We got briefed there by the UN Secretary General and uh, the UN Secretary General Special Representative Martin Kobler. We got briefed by his military advisor. And no one would have come away with anything other than the conclusion that there was active consideration of a Libyan international assistance mission. It's got a name, Liam. Uh, it was identified who was going to be part of it, 4,000 Italians, 1,000 Brits, and perhaps 1,000 others. Uh, and there was active consideration of what this force would do to help secure the centre of Tripoli for a new uh, Libyan government. Uh, over the weekend after our visit on Tunis, we left on the Friday, on the Saturday, uh, the new government of national accord was formally recognised by the UN Security Council and then putting it in a position to formally request uh, military assistance from other countries. So I wrote to the Foreign Secretary and said, uh, what are the, uh, what's being planned? What's being uh, thought of? What decisions might be taken? Not least because myself and Anna Holloway, the two soldiers in the ex-soldiers in the Foreign Affairs Committee were very alarmed about the concept of operations that was being proposed. Uh, and the explanations we then got subsequently uh, were kind of less than straightforward. You say less than straightforward. You sound almost on the verge of suggesting the Foreign Secretary has misled Parliament up to this point. Well, he, in the letter, he said he had checked and we weren't briefed by any diplomats uh, about Liam. Well, we were actually briefed by a soldier working for the defence attaché um, with large maps of the centre of Tripoli and the rest. So, strictly, yeah, no, he wasn't a diplomat. Um, but uh, there were diplomats present in the room. Uh, so that was... I just thought he's dancing on the head of a pin here. And when is a plan not a plan? If you're, act, if you're considering how you're going to achieve a particular objective and people are discussing options, uh, you are planning... You might not formally have a plan and you might not formally have made a decision, but we all know that that process would happen and the choreography would be that there would then be a formal request from a Libyan sovereign authority. We had just recognised a Libyan sovereign authority and so this, at any minute this planning would then uh, in effect be a decision. And since they would have to come to Parliament to get authority for this, uh, I was I thought it was a pity if that's worse than that, uh, that we weren't able to get into a candid discussion about uh, the merits of this particular proposal. You say uh, any deployment they'd have to come to Parliament for authority. But except special forces, that's a, and there are already British special forces on the ground in Libya uh, helping in operations particularly against uh, so-called Islamic State. But if this were to be a, a train, advise and assist mission... Would it really need the authority of Parliament, which is only a convention anyway? Indeed, it's a convention. But if you are going to put British troops into a place where they are almost certain to be attacked, uh, which is what the concept of operations was, and then you would try and claim, well, only, we're only going there as a training mission, so we really don't need to ask Parliament's permission for that, knowing full well that they would spend most of their time defending themselves against people uh, wishing them ill on the ground, uh, then I think you could say that uh, Parliament was on the verge of being misled and not being properly engaged with in a sensible way to have a conversation about uh, uh, the options available to the United Kingdom and to the rest of the international community about how to effectively support the new Libyan government of national law. That was the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Crispin Blunt, speaking to James Hurst. Christopher, why can't the government work this out? It's not the government. 
the man carrying the football, as they call it in Libya, that's the, the problem in his mind or his suitcase, um, is uh, Fayez al-Sharaf. He is the man that's got to hold this sort of government of accord together. The Italians have got a plan, and when a plan is not a plan, it means it's back to the drawing board, for a 6,000 force mm, of people to go that, in. He? Right? Yes. Uh, the Italians, the French, and the British. And what uh, Faisal Sharaf is saying at the moment, uh, listen, you do that, uh, and I'm, I'm out, because I will be chased out, and the militia will come back, and they will start, we'll be back from square one. At the moment, we're two weeks into a possibility. And if you want to keep a possibility going, then you stay out of this, because don't come here until we say, please, will you come? So how, how long do you, do you wait on that possibility then? You've got to wait on the possibility, because if you don't... He said it publicly, or to them. If we said, oh, yes, but we're stopping, uh, our plan is actually all ready to go, uh, he will say, and quite rightly... Uh, unless I invite you in, it is an intervention. And there's one other mm. aspect of this. The reason the British and the French want to get in there quickly, they want to get in there, not amongst ISIS, they want to get in amongst and stop the refugees that are coming across using Libya as a stepping-off point. Still to come, the UN is looking for a new Secretary-General, so who's up for the job? And new developments in bomb detection, but could it have stopped the Brussels attacks? David Cameron wants Sir John Chilcott's report into the Iraq war to be published as soon as possible. The Prime Minister's official spokeswoman said the timing of its publication was in Sir John's hands. She said once it was completed, the process of national security checking could begin. Then it needed to be proofread. Uh, Christopher Gosh, what is going on? Oh, it's very simple. Uh, the report, I mean, just, just quickly, this report uh, was, was, was commissioned by the then Prime Minister, um, uh, Mr. Brown. Um, they, they met in 2009 um, and it all finished in February 2011. Yeah, you, you pledged... Now, yes, what's going to happen now is on Monday, uh, Sir John Chilcott will hand that report of probably a million words over to the government. A million words which you have told me you will read them. Well, I will. Mm. I'm surprised you're not saying the same thing. Of course. Well, if I hear well, a million... Hard, yeah, <laughs> I might well, never see you again, but... Well, it's hard, <laughs> Stop doing this programme to do it. <laughs> it's hardly a book at yeah, bedtime, is it? I mean, who now, or I would what... Tell you, now, what will happen then? He will hand it over, the government will look through it, and they'll go through it. And they've already been through it, but they will go through it. And then it will be officially published, and it will be officially published towards the end mm. of the beginning of July. Who or what is anyone going to get out of this report, do you think? OK, well, you've got one group whose only interest in the report was actually hanging a Tony Blair high. That's what they wanted. They wanted what blame down. Tony Blair and, and, and John Scarlett, who, was, uh, who is or who recently retired as Director General of MI6. There's another group, and that is probably people like me just, who, who just really want to know what happened in detail and conceive this as a possibility. Don't go there in the future. What relations did you have in the United mm. States? You feel you know a lot of it already, though, don't you? I've read a lot of it. I sat through the inquiry a lot mm. of it. It's, it's never, a lot of it's not been secret, but the third... So it's not going to be a game-changer as such. I think the third, people, the third group of people is very important, um, and that is the insistence that the, the families, mostly of the de uh, bereaved, um, they want closure 
I don't think this will give them closure. It's a, it's it's a new excitement in the way that these things are managed now. With mm. somebody must be to blame. You know, my son was killed. Um, I need to know what happened. Well, the truth is, a lot of these things have come out anyway, and I don't think that Chilcot will actually give them that important. What it will give, though, is a way that at one time we went to the most controversial war of thus far of this century. The search for a new United Nations Secretary-General is underway. Ban Ki-moon will step down at the end of the year from what some describe as the biggest powerless job in the world. Well, let's talk to Rob Watson, political correspondent from the BBC World Service. Good to speak to you today, Rob. And to you, Kate. Um, so I, I understand that you were there in recent history when the Secretary-General was booted out to one side. Absolutely. I was the BBC's man at the UN, as uh, Christopher will know, in, uh, in the, the mid-1990s. Well, something extraordinary happened. They had a Secretary-General boot Boutros, Boutros, Gali, so good they named him twice. <laughs> but he fell foul of the Americans during the middle of an election campaign, so they booted him to one side and drafted in his place the guy who was then the head of the UN's peacekeeping department, a gentleman called Kofi Annan. And what really stands out from all of that, incredible behind-the-scenes stuff. I mean, it's about as undemocratic as you could possibly imagine. One of the things that they had to find out was, could Kofi Annan speak French well enough? <laughs> May we, oui, bien sûr. Absolutely. Nobody I, asked whether he could speak Russian, I seem to remember. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, now, you say undemocratic, but this time the hustings are going to be out there. It's going to be a public thing, isn't it? Well, I think that I mean I think there are understood to be elements of public meetings uh, in New York involving those who are interested in putting themselves forward, uh, and it's also going to be possible for delegations, countries represented at the UN, to, to give some of these candidates a, a, a bit of a grilling. But I don't think should, people should get too carried away. I mean, no one's going to become UN Secretary General who hasn't had the approval of the United States, the United Kingdom, France, uh, Russia, and China. Mm, who are the front runners then? Well, you know, one always has to be careful about reading out these long lists, but there's a Portuguese chap called Antonio Guterres, who used to be the UN High Commissioner, so he's, he's quite Good popular. Good chance, yeah. Well, I suppose so, although I'm not sure that they, that they want a chap this time round. I mean, I guess to, to pick out some of the, 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 the female contenders, I mean, one who's heavily tipped is Helen Clark, of course, a, a former, uh, former New Zealand Prime Minister, and, of course, currently head of the UN's development programme, so mm. she's got to be in with a shout. And one who's been mentioned as a bit of an outsider, Angela Merkel. Merkel. Really? We are. I wow. I can't imagine. I can't imagine any of those big P5 countries thinking that they'd want someone uh, big and powerful mm. as UN Secretary General. Because I think that's a point just briefly worth making. I mean, you hinted at it earlier. I mean, you want a Secretary General who's a sort of nice sort of person and, mm. you know, can get things done, but not as a rival to the President of Russia or the United States. Or, well, you get the picture, yeah? So, Christopher, who's your money on? If I, want, if I was going to put one on the moment, I'd probably put but five dollars on the nose on uh, Irina Borkova, who is a Bulgarian. Uh, I'm not sure they want a, a European at all, but a Bulgarian. But she's also director general of UNESCO, mm -hmm. and she has sort of steered. She's the the one Russians would like that. The Russians would yeah, like that, and therefore they'd... she may not get it. You know, it's <laughs> well, that sort of although, thing, isn't although, it? Although, so although who, the... who actually decides then, Rob? Well, the Ru by the way, the Russians do think that the next candidate should come from Eastern Europe. If you see, there's a, some, mm. so, there's a mad geographical rotation in all of this. Mm. So they started out with Scandinavians and then Burma, and, well, you know, you get the picture. And I think the Russians feel that the person should come from Eastern Europe. But, but who decides all of this? Well, you know, the, the, the five countries that, uh, that, that run the U.S. The Security so, Council. The Security but Council. They go, you, you see, what, what they're also looking at, and Rob's saying about, you know, the start-up and the Scandinavians, etc., sort of... Uh, uh, 
and there is a sense that you want, with respect to um, uh, the Trigvili and the people of his generation, they want sort of third worldish in a way. Um, and they, they, uh, and mm. Irina Bokova is the only one that I've heard so far speaking on anything. Mm. That she goes back to the basic code of 1945, the United Nations. The leader should be somebody who expresses, and this is the term, the moral authority of the original ideals of the United Nations. Uh, she won't get it on on a one-liner like that, but it's it's just a reminder that when people discuss what the heck does so, the person do to upstand that moral authority, it's quite a task. So, so Rob Watson, is it the biggest powerless job in the world? I don't know. I suppose that's I suppose that's a that's a bit harsh. I mean, I, I suppose. Did you say if, that, Christopher? Yeah. I thought you did. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I suppose to, to, you know to some extent it is that in that I mean it, it's it is that in the sense that people think well, crikey, you're the you know you're the secretary general of the UN. You must be able to do something. And of course, you don't you don't command the troops. It's a you're the secretary of a club, and the effectiveness of your club is is how effective the member states want to be. But I mean, it's not entirely powerless in the sense that you do have one almighty pulpit from which to do some considerable amount of preaching. I mean, I think hmm. people like Kofi Annan would have said that he, he made a bit of an impression on the world. So absolutely no power, but no influence. Well, that's a different matter. On that note, Rob Watson from the BBC, thank you very much for your time today. Nice to be with you. It's a fast-changing world. Huge advances in technology mean that we do everything much quicker than we used to, and that includes thinking. The journalist Robert Colville has written a book about it, The Great Acceleration, Questions, Government Decision-Making in the Speedier Times, and he joins us now. Hello, Robert. Hello. Uh, do our fast-paced lifestyles affect government decision-making, then? Oh, completely. Um, it, it, I mean, primarily because of the, the faster news agenda. I mean, if, in the old days, you know, you'd, you'd have the same story leading the, the Today programme and, and Newsnight, and then, then the next day's papers. Now everything moves so much more quickly. There are so many more demands on government's time, so many more things to respond to and uh, you know, initiatives that they have to come up with to, mm. to cut through. What about the clarity of thought then? Does it, does it keep up with it? They say it does, but you sometimes have have your doubts. Um, it's, I mean, it's it's it, you know, gov being in government's always been like sort of being at the in the eye of a storm, it's, and the, the storm's sort of getting getting uh, faster and faster outside the windows. What does it mean for decisions about military intervention? Sure. So I think I mean so. I think the key thing here is is that that, that feedback loop I was talking about with um, with the media. I mean. You know, in the old days, you'd, you, you, if you were fighting a war, you'd, you'd send your troops off, and then six months later, someone would come back and say, "We won" or "We lost." Whereas, you, starting with the Crimean, Crimean War, you, where they had the telegraph, you start to have this phenomenon where wars are sort of managed from Downing Street in real time. That you know, the generals start, start complaining that that politicians back home are interfering in the conduct of the war because you know they, because they're getting much more much better information, and then that develops into public opinion affecting the the. Uh, the conduct of the war, which is um, which is kind of what we see now. Um, you, you, you were talking just just then about Libya. Libya is a great a great example of how you 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 you're almost you know the wars being fought almost as much for the head the, the techniques you're using are almost as much for the headlines they're going to create back home as they are for the actual results you're going to get on the ground. Mm. Christopher, how do you see all of this? Do you think a faster lifestyle means that the likelihood of war is greater? What what happens is that nobody gets wise. Um, and you ha you're you rather like a high court judge you may be better informed but you're none the wiser of what's going on and so therefore things because, that are happening because there's no time to think? Or? Be because it's not just simply there's no time to think 
there is no time to get advice. There's no time to take that advice. I'll give you one example. Uh, uh, every morning, people would, uh, people still do, the advisors, etc., go into the Oval Office and they brief the President. The speed-up in this now is so great that he's no longer briefed in the old way. You know, the guy stands there and reads out of a paper or whatever. He is given an iPad, and there are six items on if he wishes to raise any point, because that's all he can take, because he's now got 38 different iPads in the morning, whereas at one time there were just two. How do you think that uh, the, the big thinkers should adapt to this lifestyle and this way of living, do you think, Robert? Um, I think it's about it, it's about g- being both fast and slow. It's, uh, you know, it, you know you can't, you can't sort of turn the clock back. You can't stop there being Twitter. You can't stop there being more technology but you can sort of carve out you know carve out time to actually think properly and to sort of to recognize when you're being hurried and in, hurried into decisions mm. of course the acceleration including the twitter and the kind of things during the arab swing actually arab spring actually made things happen didn't it christopher yeah it did it did and don't forget though that uh, the generals will always tell you that when when you go over the start line in a war in 15 minutes the plan's gone and therefore, you've got to have masses of information. In which case, thinking in. always did have to be quick. It all, what it was, though, it was it was it was timely. What happens now is that we get so much, and I think Robert probably better at this than I am. But we get it gets so much information comes in that we can actually we can't actually disseminate. We can't actually understand. We can't cope with all all, all that information. It's, it, it's very important. Yeah, there there's some really interesting studies. Um, actually, kind of war games they've done where if you if you restrict the amount the amount of information people are getting they they actually make better decisions than if you just give them every sing- access to every single piece of information that they require if you just give them you know, if you're sort of if you're trying to come up with a, with a strategy if you just have mm. eight eight or ten sort of key points it works better than if you're able to sort of request endless clarification so, on every single one so of them so what kind of information sifters are there out there Christopher to do that kind of job well it starts with basic technology that you will have you know the cliche that in your in your mobile telephone you've got more computer power than they had on Apollo 13 to bring it back to Earth safely, and that's absolutely true. But the point is, you now multiply this by factors that you can't imagine, because, for example, in, I mean, it's, it's not military, but you get in your motor car, in, a new motor car in 10 years' time, that motor car will actually take over. It knows who you are. It, once you sit down, mm. it's, it's got the whole thing. Well, and we're putting that through the whole military thing at the moment, and that has been war-gamed already in the classroom. In five years' time, we'll be doing automated war uh, for, for real in certain parts Robert of the Robert Colville, world. I'm just wondering, how long did it take you to write this book? Ha, I, well, I actually wrote the, uh, the book terrifyingly slowly because I had a... Oh, well done. Because, <laughs> because, I, because I had a day job. But then I, then I had to go back at the end and um, sort of rewrite all the so things. So you were told to hurry up, were you, by, y- your, by y- your publisher? Yeah, exactly. But, but, but I mean, actually, I mean, there's... But, what you, that was a really interesting example you were just talking about. There's a thing in in Afghanistan. U.S. U.S. helicopter pilots would would put iPads on their knees linked to Google Maps because Google had produced you know because Google and Apple between them had produced better software to navigate their planes than these incredibly clunky systems they were being handed by the Pentagon. That's an incredible thought. Uh, Robert Colville, thank you very much for your time today. That's Robert Colville, whose book The Great Acceleration is out now. Now, how do you catch a suicide bomber? Scientists at Loughborough University believe they may have the answer. They've invented an explosives residue detector which could have stopped the Brussels bombers from getting into the airport in the first place. Well, Professor John Tyra joins us now from Loughborough University. Good to speak to you today, Professor. Tell us about this. How does it work exactly? What we do is use a pulsed ultraviolet laser and we expand the beam up so that we actually light up the person that we want to inspect. 
and that makes the explosive molecules fluoresce, just like you've seen your shirts fluoresce in the ultraviolet lights in the nightclubs, etc. And we have some special cameras that can then look at this fluorescence and we're able to extract whether or not it's explosive or whether or not it's just everything else. So do you think it could have prevented the attack on Brussels Airport? Yes. I suppose the point is, where do you actually put these uh, the, these uh, detective devices exactly? You don't scan a crowd because the opposition's already won. What you actually do is you move the problem away from the crowd. What we learned in Brussels, what we learned um, even in Glasgow and in Moscow is that now the terminal is just as high a target as, a, as an aircraft. So what you do is you move the threat away and you put, put it, say, for example, as they come out of the metro or as they come out of the car park or as they start to enter the terminal itself so that you mount this equipment in the door frame such that it, um, it scans everybody coming in and so that you know that if the person is, has got questionable substance on them, you stop them there and then you can move over and just check with, say, a conventional swabbing system. I suppose you can stop them, but you can't stop them setting off their device if they have it on them. Unfortunately, that's, a, that's true. But what you can do is minimise the collateral. So you can shape the entrance facilities so that you can put some level of containment around it so you minimise collateral. Is it being used anywhere at the moment? Not operationally in an airport, no. We are currently putting a system into uh, a cargo inspection base. You may have remembered uh, some years ago there was the printer cartridge bomb that came out of Yemen. And um, we recognise that um, cargo also needs to be treated because in that instance they were going to use the aircraft as a, as a bomb in effect when it went over Chicago they're going to, to do that. So we're currently using it to look at um, residue on cargo. Mm. What kind of interest have you had in this? Um, it's, it's suddenly become <laughs> quite considerable, I think. Mm. It's what we refer to as event-driven engineering. Mm. So it's pretty expensive, though, isn't it? No, it's no more expensive than the other existing systems. If you look at the X-ray systems on the conveyor belts, it's similar prices to those. What about false alarms? I know, I mean, I know things like uh, fertiliser you might pick up on your golf shoes could, could potentially cause problems at airports. Would, would that be affected? No, fertiliser is fertiliser. It's the, the mixing it, for example, with um, fuel oil to make uh, ammonium, or ANFO as it's called, mm. um, and in which case we can see that. Um, but uh, false alarms, we did a trial um, at Birmingham Airport um, and out of 700 people that went through it, we got three false positives. Um, all the calibrated s- specimens that were put on the people, uh, it picked up every one of them. So we, we get what we want to see and the false positive rate is incredibly low. All right, Professor John Tyra from Loughborough University, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Christopher, what should we look forward to next week? Um, well, we look forward to actually the guy Being going here. along. <laughs> Some. Um, we, 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 we look forward to a guy going along, and you won't actually see his head because he'll be carrying in front of him Chilcot, 
not Sir John, but his papers, which would go above his head, and he would deliver it to Number Ten at a great ceremony. But it is important. It is important, even if it's only sort of, I don't know, wonks like me who are actually wanting to read every word. But I'm fascinating. When we were talking to um, um, Robert Colville earlier about sort of how fast things move. Mm. I wonder how fast the thing we just heard this detector is going to move. I mean, what next? You start getting into anxiety detection, and this is what this is what they've been working on at Dafra. This has been working on at Raquel in in Israel in the in, in uh, the uh, Israeli defense industry. How you detect anxieties in people? What do you how, mean exactly? Well, if you're I mean if you're a bomber, you're you're, you're pretty cool about life except that you're just about to blow the waistcoat and then we know what happens. Mm. And so you start to put in... I mean, you know, you can do the basic stuff like sweat tests and things like this, but you can start to do this on individuals, anxiety tests, and you can do it... The Raphael, uh, they can do it from about sort of 10, 15 feet, they say, at the moment. Mm. And that's quite a detection. It is man-powerful, man but it's, it's quite a detection. Incidentally, Raphael has just, uh, just produced something, which I think is fascinating. Go on. Drones. Mm-hmm. They've produced an anti-drone drone. Oh, by the way, are you going to go and see the film, Eye in the Sky? No. Oh, why not? Well, no, well, take you, me. you said that with such, <laughs> with such a, a curl in your lip. No, what's it? Oh, Christopher, do you want no. me to take you? Thank you very much. Okay. Indeed. Have you got any money? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's all we have time for today. Don't forget, you can download the podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. We're back next week. From me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Speak to you this time next week. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.